You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 57. And today we're asking the question, what is the full story about Safety One and Safety Two, part one? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. In each episode, we normally ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety, and then we examine the evidence surrounding it. But today and over the next uh, two weeks after today, we're gonna break the normal formula of the show and we're gonna take a deep dive into the theory of safety one and safety two. So there's a lot of public debates that tend to oversimplify a book that's almost 200 pages long and we don't wanna do that. So we're talking about Eric Holnagel's book with the same title, Safety One and Safety Two, The Past and the Future of Safety Management. And I think it was published in about 2014. So Drew, it was your idea to do this three-part series where we deconstruct the whole book and the arguments and the the science underneath it. So why, why did you want to take that approach to the next three episodes? David, I think you and I have both got into a lot of arguments at various times with people online and in other places about what's sort of often grouped together as the new view of safety. And one of the most frustrating things about those arguments is sometimes you have the sense that people are arguing against things when they've only ever read a potted summary of it. And so given that we try to take fairly deep dives into things on this podcast anyway, I thought it would be worth having a read through of the book from start to finish so I've certainly read the book before. Had you, you've read the whole book, David? Yeah, I'd read the book, but I hadn't read it for maybe five years. Yeah, I, I was the same. I did a book review of it when it first came out. So I had to sort of carefully read the whole thing. But this is the first time I, I guess I've come back to the original book since the first time that I read it. And we'd really appreciate it if as listeners, you would care to follow along and read the book yourself. We certainly don't want you to just rely on our representation of it, but hopefully the podcast might form a bit of a guide to what are the best bits of the book to focus on if you don't feel like reading it cover to cover, or where are the sort of uh, gems and where are the things that it's, you know, we think it's quite reasonable to be quite sceptical. So Drew, Safety 2 is one of this, like you said, this collection of new view theories often talked about alongside you know, HRO theory, resilience engineering, safety differently, and HOP. So what are the things that we, what, what's some background context when we're thinking about a, you know, something that's positioned as a new theory of something? So in this case, a new theory of safety management. So I guess the first thing is there's no theory that is brand new. And so it's important to take, put any new theory into the context. It, sorry, put any new theory into its context. And I think the biggest problem is that humans are pattern matching animals. So when we get a new idea, we want to compare it to things that we already know. We see an idea and we say, oh, that's really just talking about this. And so we focus on the parts of the new thing that are familiar to us. And pretty much we've failed to spot the new things because we're focusing so much on what's familiar or we're twisting things to match our understanding. And that's really bad if we then accuse the author of not saying anything new when it's us who's just reinterpreted everything that they've said. The second thing that I think is important is that most theories are built as critiques of other theories. So any new theory implicitly and usually explicitly criticizes a lot of existing stuff. 
And it's important to separate those two things out. Something could make really fair criticisms of existing stuff and not have anything that was particularly useful or accurate to say itself. Something could be very unfair in the way it criticizes other stuff, but still say something very positive itself. So we need to sort of separate out the different parts of the argument. And the third one, and this is sadly particular to safety, although I'm sure it does happen in some other fields, is that most safety theorists build both their criticisms and their positive claims on a very narrow set of examples. And they play this rhetorical game where they never actually claim that their ideas are universal, but that's what you're meant to take away. So you're meant to think that this idea applies in lots and lots of situations. This is sometimes called a Mott and Bailey argument. Um, it's something that people use when they're arguing disingenuously. The idea is that there's a modest and easy defender position, which is the castle or the Mott. And then there's a much more extreme position, which is the outer wall or the bailey. And when people attack the outer wall, the author retreats to the castle. When the attack goes away, the author reoccupies the outer wall and starts presenting the extreme position again. A classic example of this in safety, I don't want to sort of do it for safety two at the moment, is the idea of high reliability organisations versus normal accidents. So in normal accidents, Charles Perrault seems to be saying that lots of accidents are inevitable. That's the whole idea, you know, a normal accident. But any time Perot gets challenged, he says, oh, I'm not talking about all accidents. I'm not even talking about lots of accidents. I'm just talking about one type of accident called normal accidents. If it doesn't fit the pattern, well, it's not a normal accident. It doesn't disprove my theory. And then the HRO theorists seem to be presenting a recipe that any organization can follow. It seems to be anyone can be an HRO, just do these things. But any time they get challenged... They'll say, oh, we're not trying to provide a recipe, we're just trying to describe what a small number of organisations are doing. So that's the classic example of Mott and Bailey is narrow defensible claim, but everyone's supposed to take away universal messages. And we need to be careful of this when we read about safety theories. And I think, Drew, you're exactly right. I think for something as complex as safety, you know, maybe there's, there's no unifying theory that is applicable in all circumstances, in all organisations for all types of accidents or the avoidance of all types of accidents and that no theory is ever going to be able to explain all possible situations. And I don't think that's a reason not to look at the, the theories in the context of what they're saying and what they're not saying, and that's what we're going to try and do today. But I think as we'll also find out today and over the next couple of episodes, some of the representations of safety one being so broad and so general aren't necessarily that useful, and the same goes with safety two. We need to look at the specific context, like you said at the start, and what they're saying about specific situations within organisations. So Drew, we want to go through this book, Safety 1 and Safety 2, chapter by chapter, and we'll look at what the book says within the context of similar literature, and we'll particularly consider what critique the books the book makes um, and to what extent these are fair, and these are predominantly about current and traditional safety practices that are, that are labelled um, broadly as Safety 1, what claims the book makes in relation to um, those Safety 1 practices and also the, the proposed Safety 2 practices and how far these these claims may be true or empirically um, supported, and then what suggestions this book makes and how generalizable those suggestions are for organizations back to what I was um, just saying before. So, Drew, I mentioned the title of the book, Safety 1 and Safety 2, The Past and Future of Safety Management, like we said, published in 2014, so not really that old. We've been talking about Safety 2 for a while, but this book is, is, is not that old. Drew, do you want to talk a little bit about the author, Eric? Sure. I'm not going to say too much about Holnagel himself, because I think when you're reading a book-length thing, 
the author doesn't matter so much as the ideas that they're presenting. The work stands or falls by itself. But the main thing you need to know by context is that Holnagel is one of the direct intellectual descendants of a professor called Jens Rasmussen, or Rasmussen. Rasmussen's big contribution to safety was to shift the focus away from accidents as a direct result of a series of causes, and towards the idea that accidents sort of emerge as outcomes from highly dynamic socio-technical systems. And when we say socio-technical system, we just mean that all work involves technology, people, and organisational forces, and you can't really separate them out and study them in isolation without missing out on important stuff. So Rasmussen had a huge impact on a whole generation of safety theorists. So it's not just Holnagel, you can see his influence in Woods, in Levison, in Hopkins, in Amalberti and Decker. They all draw on Rasmussen to a greater or lesser extent, each with their own slightly different interpretation. And the funny thing is, if you oversimplify any of those authors, you end up back with Rasmussen's ideas at the core. So that's why ideas like HRO, Safety 2, Safety Differently, all sometimes seem to be saying the basically the same thing. If you oversimplify them a lot, you just end up back with the thing that they're drawing from rather than the new thing that they contribute. Um, if you're interested in knowing more about the background, David, I think you and I both like to say you go back to the original sources, but if you're looking for a sort of spread of the history, then there's a couple of papers by Jean-Christophe Lacosi. Um, who looks at specifically Rasmussen and Rasmussen's influence on other authors, which is a good starting point if you're trying to sort of connect how different safety work fits together. Yeah, great. I think Lacosi's done some great papers summarising some of the history of safety science and some of the problems and challenges with safety science and future directions and and wrote a couple of good papers. Actually, there was quite a, quite a strong legacy that Rasmussen has left and he only passed away. I think it might have only been last year or thereabouts, maybe the year before. And, you know, there was a lot of writing that came out about his, his legacy in safety science. Still taught quite extensively in a lot of safety science um, university courses as well. So, Drew, you wrote here on the notes that, that we started because we're going to go through three chapters, the first three chapters today and then four and five next week and then the balance of the book the week after just to sort of break it up and allow people to kind of read along and think about what the different parts of the book is saying. But you wrote in the note, no preface. Excellent. Why? You, you don't like you don't like prefaces in books? D D David, I get incredibly frustrated when you don't know whether or not you have to read the preface to get into the ideas. You know, sometimes the preface is actually the start of the explanation of what's happening, and sometimes it's meaningless drivel about what the person was thinking when they started writing the book. So I'd love an author who gets right into it. And this book definitely gets right into it. You know, chapter one is called The Issues, and it begins with how do you define safety, which I think is a great question to start any book on safety theory. Yeah, and I think um, Holnagel makes the point that we talk a lot about safety and we assume that we know what it means and very few papers or PhD theses or, or articles take the time or bother to define what they mean about when they when they talk about safety. And, and Holnagel talks about different types of definitions for safety and that there's lots of definitions and that's absolutely the case and that there's sometimes subtle and important differences in these definitions. So sometimes we're, when we're talking about safety, we're talking about outcomes or unwanted events. So if there's no unwanted events, that's what safety is. Sometimes we're talking about not no unwanted events, but the risk of unwanted events being at an acceptable level, and that is safety as well. And so this, these ideas of risk-free and acceptable risk are different and you know 
importantly, they are they are distinctions that we should understand when we're talking about safety. This is also the first time in the book that Holnagel introduces the idea that ha- having an absence of accidents is just one way of looking at safety. And he says that success and failure are not opposites. So failure is really clear. Failure is where you have the accident or you have the unwanted event. And success is something else. And I think one of the reasons why we're going to come keep coming back to it is that it's a really confusing idea because the examples that the book gives at this point are examples of where success and failure are exact opposites. Either you succeed or you fail. So he talks about a robbery and he says the plan either works or the plan doesn't work. And he talks about you what you mean when you wish a friend a safe flight. You're saying that, you know, you hope that they're going to have the flight without any sort of uninterruptions or the flight will have unwanted events happening. So he he's said this like really provocative statement that failure is not the same as success and that absence of success is not the same as failure. But the book hasn't given us any clear explanation of what the alternative is at this point. The main emphasis is on focusing on failures and saying that currently we do tend to largely focus on failures, which is a problem, particularly if we only have a small number of failures. Yeah, I think, Drew, um, it's that idea of, I think what I took out of his definition when he was explaining this was this idea of experiencing harm versus experiencing the potential to experience harm. So you can have something that doesn't actually result in an incident, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that person was free from exposure to the risk of an incident. And so he talks about, like you said, this example of when you might say to someone, drive safely, what you're actually hoping for them is that they arrive at their destination without experiencing an incident or event. But you're not necessarily telling them that you expect that they're going to drive to their destination without being exposed to any sort of harm. So I think underneath this argument, Eric's just saying is, um, is, if there's no unsafe or if there, there's no accident as an outcome, the, simplifi- the simplified conclusion that that was a safe um, activity should not be kind of um, concluded, basically. That, that's kind of how I take out of his, his definition here, but, it, but it's not overly clear. Y- yes. No, no, I agree that that's a fair interpretation. I think I'm going to be saying this quite a few times during the book. I'm wanting to have it spelt out a bit more clearly for me what the alternative is. It's very clear that what he's criticising is that oversimplified view. Yeah, exactly right. I think it's just that when when we talk about being safe, it's that the outcome will be as expected. So that th- and and in other words, and and uses this right, uses this a lot. Sorry, that things go right or things go well or things are successful. And um, a claim that um, is made is made later is that um, if things are going right and things are going well and things are successful, then they can't be going wrong at the same time. So the fundamental idea, I think, from Eric's thing is that being safe means that things go right. So the second half of chapter one is about measurement problems in safety. Um, So there are a number of clearly explained and clearly understood problems that when you try to measure safety as a set of unwanted events. So the first one, the book doesn't give it this name, but I personally tend to think about it as the denominator problem, that if you're talking about acceptable safety then you can't just say how many bad things have happened. You have to also know how many opportunities there were for bad things to happen. So, you know, if I cut my hand three times, but my job is a professional vegetable slicer and that's over a lifetime of cutting things, then that's pretty safe. If I cut my hand three times, but that's you know, the only three times I've ever held a knife I've cut myself, that's pretty unsafe. 
to know whether it's safe or not, you don't, don't just need the number of unwanted events. You need to know the number of times it went right as well. So Holnagel gives a couple of good examples where we do know the denominator. So he talks, for example, about counting signals passed at danger. Um, these are trains going through um, railway signals. And because we electronically record all of this, we know exactly how many times trains do the correct thing at signals. We know exactly how many times they do the unwanted thing at signals. So we can talk about that ratio of the two things. He also talks about the day Sweden switched from left-hand side driving to right-hand side driving. Again, a very specific event where you can count the number of accidents on that day and compare it to the number of accidents you would normally have in that situation. Yeah, and I think, Drew, the, the problem here that I think Eric's really getting to is using, even where we think we've got a denominator, using the number of incidents that occur over hours of, that people work as being a useful denominator or a, or a comparable denominator. And I think sort of saying that hours aren't actually the measure of things that go well as opposed to the incidents, which are the measure of things that, that haven't gone well. Yes. The, the way people try to justify that is they talk about, you know, it's an hour in which things went badly versus an hour in which things go well, but that's that's not what happens. Two, two hours are not directly comparable. Yeah, and I think, Drew, this is where I, I and I don't know whether now's the right place to say it, but I've, I've kind of struggled with this myself, this idea that safety too, or, or some of the new view safety says that, you know, the not having accidents is not what we're going for. We're not looking at the absence of negative events. But I think underlying all theories of safety, we're actually trying to make things safer, which I still find by definition that must mean not having not exposing people to harm or not or not or not harming people. So I think sometimes in this paper, like the argument that we're making now with denominators, we sort of cycle back around to an argument that we've said we shouldn't be doing, which is that safety is not actually the opposite of um, having an accident. Yet we sort of you we we're not consistent throughout this book with that argument. Yes, and, and I, I don't want to sort of prejudice the conclusion that we come to. Uh, f- full disclosure to our readers: we're recording this. We've got about halfway through the book, and we're recording a few episodes at once. But neither of us has finished our most recent read through. But I, I'm certainly coming to the opinion that the statement that there is a problem with the way we conceive safety one is very very clear. But the idea that the way to fix it is to divide things into this safety one view of the world versus safety two view of the world, I don't think actually succeeds in providing that clear explanation of an alternative. So beyond the measurement, the, the first measurement problem there about, you, you mentioned, Drew, about the denominator problem, um, the second measurement problem uh, that Eric talks about is the regulator paradox. So this is this challenge, I suppose, for regulators and, and for organisations, but you know, when it was initially proposed in the late 70s, it was about regulators. This idea that the safer something gets, the less data we have about accidents. And therefore, when we have very little data, it's dangerous to read too much into that data. Um, and Amalberto has probably written the most about this idea of ultra safe systems and, and the paradox of totally safe systems. Drew, your, Drew, your thoughts about, so so is it that we just don't have enough data when our, when our incident rates get too low? David, my immediate instinct there was to nitpick on where the name regulator paradox comes from. I had always assumed it came from the idea of like a circuit regulator, where you're providing feedback to a system. And once a system gets very finely under controlled, you're limited in how further you can control it because you've got no feedback. I hadn't realized it. No, that might be my lack of understanding. That's what I thought it was. It was about when I when I had a quick look, but it could well be about engineered systems, Drew. Not being an engineer, I make no claims to know about how regulators work in um, in engineered systems. But yeah, the fundamental underlying point here is very clear. 
that the safer a system gets, the less useful accident data is just because there's not very much of it. And it's not just that you can claim that, oh, we've got very little data, but what we've got is good data. It means that every single data point then has a lot of uncertainty attached around to it because they're such isolated examples, such extraordinary events compared to the everyday. The third measurement problem Holnett-Gill describes is a type of efficiency thoroughness trade-off. So he says that we can actually sort of solve that regulator paradox by trying to increase the number of negative events by expanding the definition. So this is where, okay, we don't have that many fatalities anymore, but we can count minor injuries. We don't have actual accidents, but we can count near misses and high potentials. But anytime we do that, we're making our definitions fuzzier. Defining a minor injury is much harder than defining a fatality. Defining a near miss is much harder than defining an accident. And subtle differences in those definitions make it hard to compare two situations because it could just be the difference in definition or how we're applying the definition instead of any real difference in the underlying risk. So Drew, at the end of chapter one, Eric's basically talked about some of the problems with defining safety and, and how we think about defining safety and then how we measure safety. Where are your thoughts at the end of chapter one? So I think Holnagel is pointing out some well-understood problems. You remember I said at the start that just giving nothing new isn't a criticism if that stuff that you're giving is true stuff that people should know. And so if you've never encountered these ideas, these measurement problems, it's important that you understand them in order to understand some of the more sophisticated criticisms the book makes later on about safety one. So these are obviously true problems with measuring safety. Um, and the characterization that we do tend to measure safety as a negative event, I think is mostly a fair characterization. I think we do have lots of other measures of safety other than injuries, but definitely we do recognize accidents as having this real significance beyond other types of data in safety. Yeah, Drew, I think the problems are clear. Like you said, I think in, in some of the, the writing through there, I must admit, I, I, I still kind of struggle to see some consistency in the in the absence of accidents and not necessarily the presence of safety and then we should be it's okay to read it's okay to read into accident systems that have a lot of accidents but then if they have fewer accidents you shouldn't read too much into that so there's a bit of kind of some inconsistency in in the narrative throughout the chapter but some of the other things that I think he talks about in there that we haven't quite mentioned is that the safety management system requires that feedback and so if you don't have those adverse outcomes, then you need that feedback. And I think long before this book, we were talking about leading indicators. We were trying to search for those other forms of measurement and other forms of feedback about how work goes when no incidents occur. So, but I do like I do like the conclusion there where um, I think it, it's at the end of chapter one where Eric says, look, humans have this fundamental need to be and to feel safe. And it's really important that we're thorough in trying to meet that need. So I think that's that's a good lesson in not oversimplifying something that's as important as safety. So chapter two is a very common chapter in lots of safety books. It's called The Pedigree, and it's a kind of potted history of safety thought. I personally don't like these sorts of chapters because they, they try too much to apply this narrative story that makes sense of what is really a very, very fragmented history. Safety developed in lots of different ways. It developed in different ways in different industries, in different countries. In academia, it split into lots of sometimes warring and sometimes totally isolated camps that didn't even know that each other existed. 
And so we've got different ideas getting invented multiple times in different places and in different ways. And so if you try to sort of put over that a nice smooth line, then it's always going to be a real misrepresentation of a lot of the work. Um, the particular way of doing safety history that Holnagel draws on comes from uh, Hale and Hofden. Uh, they've got a very famous paper, The Three Ages of Safety, and other people have riffed on it by talking about the fourth age of safety or the fifth age of safety. And it's this idea that there are sort of stages where first safety was about fixing technical problems, then it was fixing about human error problems, then it was concentrated on organisational accidents. And I think, Drew, like I, I think when you look at some of these narratives, and I've tried to do it as well, I've tried to tried to simplify, if you like, some of the, the history of, of safety. And I think David Boris in 2009 wrote a paper, like you said, about the fifth age of safety, the adaptive age. And, you know, sometimes we talk about going from rules to culture to resilience. And so we try to understand how safety ideas have built on each other. But, you know, when I had a look, there was ideas in the 20s that, you know, really match with some of the things we were doing now in the 2000s. And then there were things that were in the 80s that were really just a representation of things that were done in, you know, the, the early 20th century. And it's really, it's really hard. There's no linear progression in, in this safety theory and safety thinking where you try to make big generalizations. But buried within the history, uh, there are a couple of points that the book is going to come back to. I think the most important one of these is the idea that when we talk about the causes of accidents, Technical physical causes are often a lot more clear-cut than human causes, which are often a lot more clear-cut, again, than organisational causes. So Holnagel talks about that by saying that, you know, with technology, we've got a much better understanding of the mechanisms that link causes to effects, and they're much more deterministic. And when he says deterministic, he just means they're, they're knowable. We can investigate, we can find the broken component. I don't know what to what extent, David, you think that that is actually a valid distinction. Between technical and organisational or technical and socio-technical? The, the technical accidents can be investigated and have nice, neat causes pinned down. And that you know, human error or organisational accidents can't have that same you know, nice, clear point to the problem. Look, I think anywhere you draw a distinction, you're going to have grey areas um, because it's not black and white. But I think this idea that and maybe it's for next week's podcast, but this this idea that that's, comes a little bit later in the book, that in our modern complex systems, then you can't, then accidents don't have causes. You know, I don't subscribe to that. I think there are some some technical incidents, but there's also some incidents that involve people, which I would consider to be quite um, somewhat linear and somewhat simple. So we've, we've had this debate, and this is probably a long debate for another podcast, that there's no such thing as a simple accident. I think sometimes we can tie ourselves up in knots for trying to look too deeply at something that might not require deep thought. Yes, I, I think that that's a fair point. I also think that Holnagel is looking at some of the technical stuff as an outsider. And I've seen some of the engineers make the exact same argument in reverse, is that he says that you know techniques like risk assessment and fault reanalysis work really well for technology and only start to break down when things get more complex or when you start to need to consider the human and organizational aspects of a system. And I think that sort of argument ignores the fact that even when we are dealing with technical causes, a lot of safety is a very socially determined activity. It's not a technical activity. So even when we say, you know, an accident happened due to a physical cause, 
that focusing on the physical cause rather than on the process that introduced the cause or the person who didn't spot the cause or the design process that allowed the cause to happen, that's still a very sort of socially determined choice, I think, which I guess almost supports Holnagel's broader point that he's making. Yeah, and I think, Drew, look, in because safety is such a broad sort of interdisciplinary science, like you've got engineering, you've got psychology, you've got sociology, you've got management science and, and all of these other um, factors. So, I mean... I think we've recently seen a publication from Nancy Levison titled Safety 3, which is heavily critical of, of the Safety 2 ideas. And I think it's complicated. Like I'm not an engineer and I, I, I find it very, I very kind of find it challenging to think about how my ideas might apply to technical disciplines, because it's something that you, I think as a, in an academic sense, you don't want to be one of those people that are trying to overgeneralize your ideas. So, my personal opinion is that if you're reading the book and you're looking for which bits you can skim and which bits to read closely, I'd feel very comfortably recommending skipping chapter two. There's a real risk that whenever you try to paint this sort of clear picture, you're just going to annoy other people. And particularly if you sort of come from one of the other subfields of safety science, then Holnagel's view of the history is designed to lead you to his ideas being the next progression. And so if you don't already agree with that, then you're going to find the history a bit annoying. Yeah, I agree. I think there's other places to go to to find better summaries of the history of safety science. I think last year, um, Drew, you contributed as well to Sidney Decker's book called The Foundation of Safety Science. I think it's a it's a broader, fairer representation, but it's also still written very much through the through Sydney's worldview lens. Um, and I think if Listeners remember episode 17 when I interviewed Carsten Bush titled uh, What Did Heinrich Really Say Based on His Master's Thesis? I'd suggest at times getting as close to the source material as you can or or at least going to a peer-reviewed literature review or something in the um, in an academic journal that's actually done some more forensic um, historical account of, of what the literature said. Yeah, always when you want to understand what a particular person said, go and read their words for themselves. Don't rely on someone else's history. If you're trying to understand how ideas fit together, I think Sydney does a fairly good job of not creating this sort of inevitable march towards progress that some people do in their representations of safety. Um, and Licozzi's work is good too at sort of connect. He doesn't do a big history, but he does a good job of sort of connecting various ideas together and showing how they emerge from each other or are linked or are different from each other. Okay, so, so let's wrap up where we're at at the end of chapter two. If you're not already familiar with the ideas, then I think Holnagel points out some important problems that people should be aware of in safety. The first one is that when we talk about safety, we should be very clear about what definition we're using. And if nothing else, Holnagel reignited a really important debate about how exactly we define safety. People were getting very, I think, too comfortable in their definitions, even though they didn't agree with each other. And Holnagel points out that if you disagree without realising that you disagree, you're just talking at cross-purposes when you try to explain what safety is or how we achieve it. Andrew, I think this denominator problem is real and it's important. So Holnagel doesn't say explicitly, he doesn't talk about TRIFR and lost time injury frequency rate, makes it worse or better because it does have a denominator, like I mentioned earlier. But like we said, hours worked are not the same thing as a number of opportunities for an accident. So I just did a little bit of a thought experiment, Drew, if you've got a recordable injury rate of 10, many of our listeners would say, whoa, that's really unsafe. So it's 10 per, per million hours or, or maybe, say, 
two per 200,000 hours, depending on which part of the world you're in. But say a person performs 10 tasks every hour, then you've actually got a functional reliability of something like 99.99999 because you're doing you're having like one incident for for every um, 10 or 100 million tasks. So this this idea that our hourly denominator is a useful denominator for our number of accidents is is something that look we we probably we don't need to say too many too much more about statistics after our episode two weeks ago, Drew. But um, but that's just another problem with um how we currently talk about statistics and lagging indicators. And so likewise, the regulator problem is real and important. It's definitely true that the safer we get, our opportunities to improve safety further by studying accidents are going to be reduced. And we've either got to just start studying near misses and investigating those with the intensity of accidents, or we've got to find some other way to deal with what our safety activities are aimed at. I think, though, that we're two chapters in and we're still waiting for a clear picture of what Holnagel is suggesting. He's hinting at this bright alternative where we're measuring positives rather than negatives. But we haven't really explained whether positives are just the opposite of negatives or whether they're something entirely different and what that something entirely different would be. So we're still sort of looking to see what is safety too. If you get the opportunity all of our listeners, and you have a copy of the book, and um, I'm sure many of you will or, or can get your hands on a copy of the book, then we'd encourage you over the next three weeks to read along with us. So um, we've read the first two chapters for for this episode and post your own opinions on the chapters. We'll try and get some discussion going on LinkedIn. Let us know if you think our summaries are fair. Let us know if you're reading into the writing something that's different to us or, or you have different different suggestions for how we might interpret it. And anything that you think what in terms of what Holnagel is saying in this book that's either good or bad or that we might have missed. So that's it, at least for this week. We'll be continuing our discussion of Safety 1 and Safety 2 next episode. In the meantime, we hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Join us on LinkedIn or send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com. 